All right, so we are in a in a series through Second Corinthians. This is our our book for the for the season here. We're we're gonna take a short break in December. Um, I'm really excited for December actually because um, all so we have four elders, including me. So three other guys and me serve as the elders, and all of us are gonna take a week in December to preach. And I'm I love it. These guys are gonna kill it, and it's gonna be great. So. Uh, that's December. We're going to take a quick break and look at Christmas and that kind of thing for December, and you'll get to hear from each of your elders uh, for each one of those weeks. Um, but for now, we've got a few more weeks yet before we get there, and we're, we're working through 2 Corinthians, and we'll probably wrap this up sometime in early spring. Um, so as we get into this letter, as we've been, you know, we're not quite at the halfway point yet, uh, but you may have noticed that this letter is like extremely personal. Like Paul just clearly has some history with these, with these people. And it's a little awkward actually at times because it's like you walk into a room and there's a married couple bickering, you know, and you're like, you don't know whether you should back away or stay and see what happens, you know, right? It's like, you just don't know. It's kind of an awkward situation. And Paul clearly has uh, a lot of background with this church and so, so we're listening in on things that we don't really have a whole lot of context for in some cases. Like we don't really know exactly why Paul's writing this letter. We have some clues from within the context of it, but we don't have a clear cut like, okay, this is what he's doing with this letter, we, like we do with many of his others. Romans, we know he's laying out a theological case for the gospel of Jesus. He makes a very logical, clear case for the gospel. We know that's his purpose. We know in Ephesians and Colossians, those, those letters were written to show people how to live in light of what Christ has done, right? We, we know a lot of his purposes, but Second Corinthians is a little fuzzier, and, and it's like he's just kind of picking up where they left off, but we don't know where they left off because 1 Corinthians was written sometime before this one. There was a visit in between those letters where there was obviously something happening. And then Paul's writing this letter in response to that visit and the fallout from that visit. So, so we don't know exactly, but here's what we do know. Here's what's very clear. Uh, we know that Paul is trying to win the Corinthians back to the cause of Christ. That's clear. Uh, we know that that's his intention, at least to, to a certain degree. Whether there's other things going on in that, there probably are. But that is fundamental, that he's trying to win them back to Christ. And, and at some point, the Corinthian church had slipped away from Jesus. And, and many times... You know, it's not a deliberate decision that makes us slip away from Jesus. It's a gradual, just sort of floating away. It's like having a boat that's not anchored all the way down, and it's just gonna, it's gonna go. It's gonna go somewhere else if it's not anchored or tied uh, to the the pier. So, we we want to recognize that that's where the Corinthians are at. They've just sort of slipped away from the the center of Christ, and he's trying to get them back. We know he spent years with the Corinthians. Uh, multiple years, at least two uh, years, and then cumulatively probably more than that. Um, and so there's a ton of background and history here between Paul and this church. And it's evident that he loves them, like really loves them. And they 
don't love him very much, at least not at this point. Um, but, but he is nonetheless undeterred. He's just going to keep on plowing forward with, with gospel love for this church. So as we get into chapter 5, um, we've seen already in this letter that Paul talks about suffering and how his own suffering has been, has been used by Christ to comfort the Corinthians. Uh, and he, he just has a ton of personal examples and stories to share. But as we get into chapter 5, he's really going to draw them back to what it means foundationally to be centered on Jesus. What, is this, what does it mean to be foundationally centered on Jesus? And he's going to give us, as we work through this chapter, he's going to give us three things, three ways that we can live Christ-centered lives. And then as he concludes the chapter, he's going to bring it all around to, okay, here's the things you should be doing to live a Christ-centered life, but how do you actually do that? And he's going to bring it back to that at the end. So, so it's a great chapter for that. Um, so let's dig in. We're going to look at the first three things here. Um, and the first one takes up probably, well, a good, a good third of the whole chapter. It's the first 10 verses are just on the first point. So we're going to take a a little bit of time on the first one, just because there's so many verses to cover. And then we'll, we'll, we'll go on from there. Um, but let's look at it. Look at verse 1. It says, For we know that if the, the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be uh, from the body and at home away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so these are the first 10 verses. Now, um, here's his overall point as we read this. Okay, His overall point is this, that the the Christ-centered life is about loving Jesus now and forever. Right? That's what he's talking about. The Christ-centered life is about loving Jesus now and forever, for eternity. And he talks about eternity a bit, and really he's, he's picking up where he left off in the prior chapter. We spent a good amount of time talking about eternity last Sunday, and, um, and he deals with that at the end of chapter 4. But he car- carries that thought through, and basically is saying this in the first like five verses, he's saying, listen, we, have, uh, we, we are living in these earthly bodies that he refers to as a tent, right? A tent versus a home. He says, 
we know that if this tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And so what he's simply saying is, is this is our lives here and now are temporary. Like we, we ultimately have a home with Jesus forever, right? We, we're not ultimately here and now uh, focused as Christ-centered people because this is just a temporary place. Like a tent is not a permanent home, or at least it shouldn't be, right? And everybody agrees pretty much with that. As much as you may love camping, you do not want to camp for the rest of your life. Like very few people do. And maybe, maybe you do, but I, I would kind of doubt it. I, I think most of us, given the choice between sleeping in a tent or sleeping in a house, would choose a house, right? And certainly Paul would. That's where he's using this analogy to take us. He's saying that our earthly bodies, our physical bodies here and now, are just temporary homes that, that one day we'll be rid of and we'll have a permanent home built by God. And he's referring there to our resurrected bodies, to the new bodies that Christ will give us in the, in the last resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is saying, we, we don't, as Christ-centered people, we don't just focus about here and now. We think about eternity. But here's the thing. Here's the problem with that, right? When we think about eternity, when we, when we have all of our focus on heaven, we tend to be worthless here on earth, right? We, if, we're, if we're only concerned about heaven, we lose sight of the fact that Christ wants us to be here now. Like there's that old song um, that, you know, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away, right? It's not a terrible song, but it kind of takes the whole point of living for Jesus here and now off the table. Because if all we're thinking about is let's just, just fly away, just let me fly away, um, we're, not really, we're not really in the moment. And that's where Paul takes it, right? He, he does acknowledge that our, our lives here are temporary and we will one day be with Jesus forever in his glory and in perfection. But that's not where we are now. And so we shouldn't be throwing in the towel. We shouldn't just be throwing up our hands and going, well, I just wish I was with Jesus. And, I, and so I'm just going to sit here and wait till he takes me or something. Like he, he actually says, of course we want to be with Jesus. But here we are, right? We're here. And so in verse 6, he says, So because we know we have an eternal home with him, we can be of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Yes, we want to be with the Lord, but we're, we're not with him, so we can be of good courage. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage in verse 8. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, of course. But then look at verse 9. This is, I think, the linchpin of his, of his first point. Verse 9 says this, So, whether we are at home or away, and I don't know, he's mixed his, he's mixed his metaphors here, so I'm not sure if home refers to here or there, or if home refers to there and not here. I don't know, because he used, he used the term for both. Um, so, regardless, though, the point is clear. Whether we're home or away, whether we're with Jesus or here on earth, what does he say? We make it our aim to please him. Paul's drawing us back 
to the fundamental thing that it means to be Christ-centered. It is to love Jesus, to make it our aim to please him, to, to want to do that which honors him. And, and we're going to do that perfectly when we're with him in uh, face-to-face. We don't do it perfectly here because we're still struggling with sin. But, but it should be our aim, our goal, our desire, and our hope to, to live for his, for his joy and to please him. That's, that's where he takes us, right? So he's, we have to have, like I think I said this last week, but we have to have a balance, balanced view of all of this. Like the body that we have right now, that you have right now, is a temporary home for you. Christ will give you an eternal body, uh, a resurrected body. And there's a lot of mystery around that. We don't exactly know if we'll look the same way as we do now or if we'll have totally different features or what it'll be like or if we can fly or something. I don't know. Like we don't know a lot. But, but what we do know is that Christ is preparing us an eternal place with him. That's good news. But we can't overemphasize that to the neglect of the people around us right now. The fact that Christ has called us right now, whether home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So the Christ-centered life is about loving Jesus now, right now, and forever, for eternity. And then, then verse 10, I don't want to skip past this because verse 10 is uh, probably the hardest verse in this, in this book, if not in one of the hardest verses in the Bible. Uh, And I'll say, I'll read it here, and then I'll just talk a little bit about about it. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right, so I've read a ton about this this week, and and it is, um, it's like, you just pick pick one, and they're going to have a different opinion than the, the next one. Like, it's just, everybody's got different views on this. But I think what's fundamentally clear here is that Paul is saying we are going to stand before Christ. And, and I think what we have to be careful, very careful, is to not read this outside of the context and, and make it say something that it's not saying. Because if we just pulled this, plucked this up out of its book, out of the scriptures, and just left it on its own, it would sure sound like we're going to have to stand before Jesus He's going to weigh our goods and bads on some giant cosmic scale. And as long as our good outweighs the bad, we're fine. That's what it sounds like if you don't read it in the context. But here's the thing. That's clearly not what Paul's saying. um, Because, first of all, he's writing to Christians, to people who are already saved. So this is not a verse that's about whether or not you get into heaven because of your good things or your bad things get removed from heaven. That's clearly not what he's referring to. He's not talking to non-Christians here. He's talking to believers, people who have already been justified and made right with Christ through their faith. That's clear. So what is he talking about then? What is he saying? Like I said, there's so many different points of view. I don't know if I have a perfect view of it, but I think it's pretty obvious, to me at least, that he's saying we, what we do here and now, what we do on, in our life right now does have consequences and it does have, uh, 
It matters. It matters for eternity. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to say, okay, you were a bad Christian, so now you're going to be punished. I don't know that that's what it has to do with. I think it has more to do with um, having a discussion with Jesus and going, okay, how did you use this time and gifting that I gave you? I, I, I don't think we're going to be getting some you know, cosmic scolding if we don't live perfect lives. But I do think we need to recognize that what we do here and now does have uh, matter, uh, does matter rather, in eternity. And I think that this is not outside of what Paul's said in many other places. Uh, he says it differently in different places, but let me take you to two places. Um, first, Ephesians chapter 2. So here's where Paul, again, is writing these words. He's going to say in verse 8 through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, so right there we see salvation is not based on your works. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you don't pay for it. Christ gives you his salvation purely by grace as you trust in him and put your faith in him. But then look at what verse 10 says. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul sees no contradiction between being saved by grace and then actually living out those, those acts of grace and doing good works with them. I think that's really just where he's going with this. I don't think it's a whole lot more complicated. Now, of course, we can speculate all day long about what it means to receive what is due for what is done. I mean, I don't know what Paul means by that. I'll just be frank with you. I don't know. And I don't know that anybody knows. We'll find out. All right? We'll find out. That'll be fine. But listen, your salvation doesn't hinge on whether you do good or evil. Your salvation hinges on whether you've trusted in the finished work of Christ. Paul says it again in a different way in uh, Titus chapter 3. And he says uh, there, uh, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of work done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, very clear, very plain. You are not saved by works done by you in righteousness. But then he says in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Insist on what things? That we're saved by grace and not by works. So that... Why do you insist that we're saved by grace and not works? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There is no contradiction in Scripture between being saved by grace and pursuing good things. But here's the point. Going back to 2 Corinthians 5, the point of our good work is not to earn our way to Jesus. It is to please Jesus. It is to love Jesus. And if we're called to love Jesus now and forever, 
That means, that implies that our lives here and now should reflect that we love him. And so we make it our aim to please him. Not in some legalistic, I've got to do this to make God happy with me kind of way, but as an overflow of a heart of gratitude that Christ has given to us through his kindness. I think when we recognize that what we do matters, not as a way to earn our way in, but as a way to, to show Christ and others the, the glorious truth of the gospel, I think that just changes everything for us. I really do. All right, so that was number one. I know I took a lot of time on that because there were a lot of verses to cover, but we'll keep going here. Um, the first point was that we are called, if we're living a Christ-centered life, we are called to love Jesus, called to love Jesus uh, now and forever. Second point, verse 11 through 13. Let's read them. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. All right, so here's where we could, we could go in a lot of different directions with those verses. But I think this is where, at least for for what I'm thinking of as I read this is that, that Paul's getting to this point. The Christ-centered life is about loving people enough to fear God over them. It's about loving people enough to fear God over them. Verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Right? So he's, he's calling clearly here to, to, for us to persuade others towards Jesus, but because we know the fear of the Lord. Let me, let's just pause and talk about that phrase, fear of the Lord, because uh, Crystal probably remembers this. We were at a wedding two years ago in Illinois. Uh, I was officiating a wedding for my friend. And, you know, if you've ever been to a wedding, it's always the same script. I mean, pretty much, right? It's almost always the same script. And one of the lines that I, that I say, and every, pretty much every pastor I know says, is some, something along the lines of, we don't, you don't enter into marriage inadvisedly or lightly, but reverently and in the fear of God. Okay, so I, I'm just reading my script, okay? And I'm saying that. After the reception, you know, we had a great wedding, great reception. It was awesome. We were, we're heading out the door, and this lady that I had never met in my life runs up to me and says, dude, which is weird when you're the pastor and officiating. You don't usually get called dude. I mean, it's cool if you call me dude, but it was weird. Dude, uh, there is no fear of God. And I was like, and then she ran away. <laughs> like, I couldn't even like respond. Do you remember that? That was weird. Um, I was like, wait, because I'm, I'm wanting to talk to her about this. And because clearly she misunderstood what fear of the Lord means. <laughs> Uh, and I don't blame her for that. I mean, she's probably, you know, not familiar with the lingo or whatever. That's fine. I, I just wish I could have talked to her about it. But she ran off. Um, but it made me realize, okay, maybe I should change the script a little bit just to try to clear that up. Because fear of the Lord, I think what she thought I meant by that was that we're afraid of God, like we're in some corner freaking out, like it's a horror movie or something. Um, that's not what the fear of the Lord is biblically. 
Now, if you're not a believer in Christ, you have reasons to fear the Lord. Okay, so maybe I should have told her, well, you might, you might need to fear. No, uh, uh, <laughs> just kidding. I can't judge her heart. Um, so I was mean. I was mean. Sorry. Okay. The point of fearing the Lord is not to be afraid of him. It's to, it's to revere him. It's to respect him to the highest degree. It is, it is to see him uh, as the sovereign Lord of the universe and submit to him, right? Fear of the Lord is a reverence thing. It's a worship thing. It's a aligning our hearts to him thing. And so what Paul is saying here is that if we understand the Lord and who he is and how we should respond to him, then what we should be doing in response to that is persuading others to fear him as well, to, re- to revere him and honor him as well, but, but not to be afraid of the opinions of people in the process. We need to love people enough to fear God over them. And here's the thing, people-pleasing is a massive problem for all of us. And I know some of you will, will probably say, well, I don't care what people think of me. You do. You do. You, everyone does. Okay, we're all somewhere deep down still those awkward sixth grade kids that don't know if we're going to have friends at lunch, right? We, we're all that, we're there. Every one of us still deals with those things. And so deep down, we all want to be liked. We all want to be accepted. And, and so, so we can have the tendency to fear people in the hope that, that what, what they'll do is they'll give us acceptance that really should only come from Jesus, the acceptance we long for should come from him. And when we try to, to please people over pleasing God, what we're doing is damage to our lives and to their lives. And, and it stops us in our tracks. It's because we want them to like us. We won't say the things we need to say or we'll be pushed into lying or manipulating. And, and that doesn't love people well. It does, it's, it's counterintuitive because we think that by, that by fearing people or, or caring about all their opinions that we're actually loving them well. But the opposite's true. When we care more about what they have to think of us than we do about what God has to think of us, then, then what we're doing is actual harm to that relationship and we're not loving them well. And so we, we just need to rest in this truth that that I've shared so many times here and and will continue to say it, that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection, the work that he accomplished for you, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress because you only have to be concerned about an audience of one. All you have to be concerned about is what does God think? And I get that's hard. This is a lifelong battle for us as human beings to fight people-pleasing. But that's where Paul goes, right? He says in verse, um, the end of verse 11, he says, but what we are is known to God. What we are is known to God. God knows you. God knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you need. And Paul says, I hope that it's also known to your conscience, he says, we know, we know that God knows us. We hope that we've been transparent and honest with you and that you know us. And he, he says in verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again. 
but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He, he's saying, listen, we, we don't want to impress you, but we want you to know how much we love you so that you can tell others how much God has been at work in our lives. That's, that's where he's trying to take them. That People are so concerned about the outward appearance, what looks good, what sounds good, all that stuff, right? We're so concerned about that that we don't give much concern to who God is and what he wants. And that's not loving to the people around us. The Christ-centered life loves people enough to fear God over them. All right, third, look at verse 14 through 17. I love this. For the love of Christ controls us. Um, I think compels us is maybe a better translation, but that's where my, my, my Bible says control, so I'm reading that. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right, so here's the third, third point that Paul's trying to drive home for us. Um, the Christ-centered life is is about loving people because Christ loved us. Like, that's not rocket science. It shouldn't be. It, it's, it's so simple, but it, it can't just be blown past. I mean, look at what Paul says. He says, it is the love of Christ that compels us or controls us. But, but I like compels because compel implies um, a, a change of motivation, not just like someone pulling strings, right? So again, I think the, the word probably has a, in a range of meanings, but, but I think compel sounds a little bit more to the point. And he says, we, the love of Christ calls us to this because, he says, one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul, Paul's saying we, we have to just be compelled by the love of Christ, that he died for us, that he was raised for us. And that should lead us to want others to get in on this. It should be the thing that drives us to help more people meet Jesus. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. And he goes, he goes on and talks in verse 16 about how um, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh or the body, even though we once regarded Christ according to the body, we don't regard him that way any longer, right? He's, he's just simply saying, like, what really matters is our souls. What matters is the fact that we can have an eternity with Christ. And then he says, therefore, this famous verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what we want people to experience. It's what I want you to experience. It's what you want your unsaved neighbors and coworkers and friends to experience. The new life that Christ has to offer. All of it is because Jesus died and rose. And, and, if, and we're, we should love people motivated by the love of Christ. We should love them enough to tell them these things. We are loved by Christ to the highest degree. Um, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us. He displays it. He puts it on display in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know how Christ loves you? Look to the fact that he died for you while you were still in your sins. That tells you something because very few of us would love somebody in that state. None of us would if it weren't for Christ. And so it's the love of God that serves as the motivation that we need to love others. All right. Now, let's go to verse 18. There's a few verses left in this. And, and here's what I think is awesome. Um, Paul pivots away for a moment here from the, from the, okay, do this, do this kind of thing, right? This, this call. And he, and he just really gets us back to the foundation of, of how all of this is possible, like, how can we live these kind of Christ-centered lives? How is it possible that we can live to please Jesus now and forever? How could we ever do that? How can we uh, love people enough to not be afraid of them and to fear the Lord? And said, so how could we ever get ourselves to that point? How can we be compelled by the, by the love of Christ to love others well? All of that is answered for us in verse 18. Look at what he says. All this is from God. I mean, we could just stop there. Right? It's going to get better and better as he keeps talking. But he's like, all of this is from God. You don't have to muster up some self-righteous strength to get yourself here. God gives us these things. He provides them for us. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice what Paul's saying. He's telling us that all of the things we've just seen are only possible because we are reconciled to God through Christ. We, if we weren't reconciled, meaning if we didn't have a restored Re repaired relationship with Jesus, um, then, then none of us could have any hope of loving him or loving others in a Christ-centered way. We would have absolutely no hope to do that if we weren't reconciled to God. 
But Paul's point is this, that because you've been reconciled to God, because God has not counted your trespasses against you, and in fact, as verse 21 says, took all of your sin upon himself and gave to you his righteousness, this great exchange that that, uh, Martin Luther refers to here, this great exchange of our sin given to Christ, Christ's perfection given to us. That is what makes us right with God. And it's what compels us to, to keep moving forward. And it's what compels us ultimately to draw others to him. And that's where Paul goes, right? Paul says here in multiple places that we are given this ministry of reconciliation. That because we've been reconciled, we should call others to be reconciled to God as well. We, we have this mission to go on, to keep pushing forward, to continue to bring to the world around us, to preach God's word and to have those conversations with our neighbors and friends and family, to have these things and to do what Paul says here, that he says, we implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He wants all of us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we should want that too. We should want everyone in our lives to know Jesus. It doesn't mean that we have the power to make that happen. We don't. But we have a great mission that we get to go on and be a part of. So we're called to this, right? All of this stuff that we've just been talking about, about living Christ-centered lives, it can only happen if we're right with God. And so here's the thing. Some of you in this room are not right with God. Some of you have not been reconciled to God. You can be. You, you should be. I want to ask you to be today. Uh, if you don't know how to do that, man, I can just tell you quickly, it's very simple. There's nothing magical or complex. It's simple. You just confess your need for him. You give him your sin and say, this is all of my garbage. I just need you to take it from me. Forgive me of it. Please change my life and make me new. If you call that out and say that in some way or form, he's going to hear you. He's going to respond to you. He's going to come and save you. He will do that. And you need to do that. And if you want to talk more about that, I, I would be glad to chat with you after church. But some of you need to do that today. Some of you here have done that, have been reconciled to God. You're a believer. You're trusting Christ. You're, you're walking with him. But we can never forget. We can never take it for granted. We can never neglect the truth that if we're going to live Christ-centered lives, that's what we've got to be resting on. That Christ has reconciled us to himself and calls us onward to help more people hear about this. The way we talk about it here is simple. We, we say we're about three things. Love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. That's what we're about. That's what the Bible's about. That's what all of this is for, right? To, to help all of us love Jesus individually and as families, but also to love each other really well and to help everybody else we encounter love him too. That's the mission. That's the hope. Um, and so I hope you're on mission in whatever capacity that looks like for you, whatever way that looks. But to live a Christ-centered life is to be centered on the gospel hope we have. That for our sake, Jesus became sin 
though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the center. And that's what we should be consistently turning our hearts back to. So with that said, let me pray for us. We'll sing a few songs in response and, and partake of the Lord's table today as well. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us with an eternal love, a love that we didn't earn or deserve. Um, and we just pray, God, that you would help us to be centered again on these things, that you would help us again uh, to know that these things are true and that they have implications for our lives. And I want to pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, hasn't trusted you, hasn't given their sin to you, that they would do that, that you would call them there. I pray that you would do that today as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.